Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Christianity Today and Kairos Partnerships. I'm J.R. Briggs, and I'm here with my co-host, Doug Moister. Hey, Doug, great to see you this morning. J.R., I wish I had a kazoo or like one of those party things right now, like, burr, burr. just, I don't know, it just feels like that kind of moment right now. <laughs> well, it's fun to be back into these episodes, bringing fresh content on Monday mornings, and uh, we are excited about this guest that we're going to be having on, Pastor Tom Nelson. Some of you may know that name. We'll give the full bio in a second, but one of the things that Tom loves to talk about is what does it mean to be a flourishing pastor, a flourishing human being? And so um, we're excited about that. But Doug, let's talk about flourishing a little bit. Yeah. When you hear the word flourishing, Doug, what do you, what do you think of? What, what comes to your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, for me, I, I really have this picture and this image in my mind of like everything working in this like beautiful <laughs> way where it's just, it's like cogs in a wheel, man. It just, it's flowing. Uh, I, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. as a, as an outdoor person, I, I think about really healthy streams, right? Like you've got some, you've got some real quick running water where oxygen's really high. You've got incredible plant life. You have birds, you've got just, it's all there. I think it, for me, it's like the, that abstract, but even in my own life, it's like when things just seem to be right, where it feels like there's a rightness about things and the stuff that I'm putting my hands to, it feels like the hands of Christ are present and working, you know, I'm working with him in the, in the renewal of all things. How about you, JR? Yeah, I, two things. I think of life, life just completely as it should be, and that there's a pleasantness to it. When I see a flourishing plant or a flourishing couple or a flourishing relationship, mm. I always just get a smile on my face. So there's a sense of life and just pleasing. There's just, it's just joy when you see things flourishing. And, and I think that, you know, Doug, so many of our listeners and leaders and pastors so want that, right? We want life. And, and I think I've talked to a pastor recently in a coaching call who said, I, I want to believe that like life and living life to the fullest is available, mm. but it just seems out of reach. Mm. It just seems, I, I just can't quite get there considering the season that we're in. Mm. And so life and life to the fullest to me feels like, you know, there's also that word verdant, you know, verdant, uh, and just when it's just, it's green and it's overflowing and there's just momentum of more of it. Uh, I just feel that's what flourishing is to mm -hmm. me. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, I think even just thinking about Jesus, I have come to give you life and life abundantly, right? Like this, this idea yeah. of a flourishing life is actually something that Jesus says that he's come to give us. and. Yeah, and I think it's hard, right? It's hard to talk about those those seasons, especially when it feels like we've been in the belly of Psalm 23. You know, I've been walking in the valley of the shadow of death, and man, this son of a gun is a lot longer than I anticipated. But it's like yeah. his presence is with us. And even in that, like, what is flourishing? I was thinking about this uh, as I was um, reading uh, Tom's book, but just like, what does flourishing look like even when things are rough? Like, is it possible to have moments or or pockets of flourish of flourishing in your life even when things aren't don't seem to be going fully in the right direction J just that idea of like is it possible even when things are off to have just to see god's like god's nature and his abundance and his abundant life present even in in like pockets of life yeah when i think about flourishing i think there are two questions i'd love to pose to our pastors as we go into this interview with tom and it's this 
when was the last time, Pastor, that you felt that you were flourishing? What did that look like? What did that feel like? What were the factors when you were flourishing as a pastor, as a leader, or even as a human? In part two, question number two, this, this may be something where you say, wow, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. So then the second question is, what keeps you from experiencing that flourishing life today? So I want you to keep those two questions in the forefront of your mind as you're hearing this interview with Tom. And one of the things you're going to hear Tom say that I absolutely love, we're, he talks about resilience. He talks about the danger of visionary leaders. It's just a great conversation. But he had this wonderful quote. He said, pastors who lead well are led well. And I want you to just key in on that when he talks about that. So we hope you enjoy this interview with Tom Nelson. Our guest today is Tom Nelson. Tom earned a master's of theology degree from Dallas Theological Seminary and holds a doctorate of ministry degree from Trinity International University. He's the author of several books, including Work Matters, Connecting Sunday Worship to Monday Work, and his newest book, The Flourishing Pastor. Tom is the president of Made to Flourish. Uh, it's a pastor's network for the common good. He also serves on the board of the Gospel Coalition and Trinity International University. He has two grown children and has been married to his wife, Liz, for over 30 years. Please enjoy this conversation with our friend, Tom Nelson. Well, Tom, it's great to have you here on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Thanks for your willingness to jump on with us today. Well, Doug and JR, it's great to be with you. You, uh, There are so many things that we could talk about today. I mean, being the director uh, of Made to Flourish and the Flourishing Pastor, you being a local church pastor, there's so much that we could talk about. But one of the things we like to ask our guests is tell us a little bit about your call to ministry. That's always a fun question to get to know our guests. How did you know uh, you were called to ministry, and what did that? How has that call unfolded over the years and the decades in your own life? Yeah, well, actually, I mentioned this uh, in the latest book. I give a bit of an autobiography. As a young boy, I came to faith. Uh, I'm from Minnesota, Minnesota kid. I came to faith in a Christian home when I was very young, and I still remember sitting by my mom uh, during a church service. Maybe I was eight or nine years old. I had just come to faith, listening to the preacher preach. And I remember a distinct impression from the Lord. I mean, I didn't all know what it meant then, but like, hey, I'm going to do this someday. Uh, so I've had a sense that God wanted me to be involved in, I will use the word 501c3, kind of nonprofit work uh, for a long time, even though I've had some work in business and parachurch organizations. So I had a sense once I came to faith in Jesus, I had a very real childhood conversion, guys. Not everyone has that. Uh, but it was very real where the God of the universe kind of reached down and grabbed this little boy in rural mm -hmm. Minnesota and nap his neck and said, you know, I love you and I want you to serve me. So, yeah, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. I guess I should be more like him by now. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I've had a strong sense of that for a long time. That's really amazing how, yeah, I, and, and I love how with each of our guests, we have so many varied stories of the way that God calls and and confirms that calling. Um you know, one of the things too that's interesting is you're joining us today, and and you just found out a few days ago that you have COVID. Um, and so, yeah. first of all, I think you get the the gold star award for showing up to an interview. Um, but yeah, I mean, COVID has done a lot uh, in the landscape that we find ourselves in, and and how how have you seen that impacting like the local church and even your own soul? Yeah, COVID, none of us have ever been here before. I mean, this, I use the language in the book, a black swan, which is an economic term to describe this extremely rare economic environment. 
So, you know, that's a really wonderful question, Doug. And I think, uh, you know, pastors, mental health professionals, I was reading uh, in the Wall Street Journal recently, CEOs are resigning in unprecedented numbers. So I think uh, my wife is a mental health professional. I think what I'd use mm. the language is, you know, um, things have been amplified at a high decibel level. So yes, personally, uh, COVID has plunged us into a free fall of uncertainty in so many dimensions. I think we had a myth of certainty before, <laughs> you know, false certainty, but it's been very stressful to lead. And I think for most of us, people have not been the best selves. There's been so much conflict, so much frustration. Uh, it's been a hard time. Having said that, uh, I do believe it's a time of pruning, and I do believe it's a time of growth and opportunity, but I'm not minimizing that people are simply exhausted. They're exhausted from change, from fear, from the stress of life. So it's been a really hard time. And pastors, if they're worth their heart, <laughs> feel that weight as shepherds. So Tom, you know, what does it look like for pastors to come out on the other side? What is your hope of how pastors emerge during this difficult season now that we're almost uh, hopefully on the other side of this? Yeah, JR, I'm very hopeful, actually. Uh, I'm not minimizing the pain and struggle, but God uses our pain and struggle in great ways. I think the key metaphor of our time is pruning on multiple dimensions. So if pastors lean into the pruning, you know, pruning is really an interesting metaphor because it's not just dead wood, right? It's good wood that is meant to be greater wood down the road. So <clears throat> what I would suggest is that God is pruning my idols, the idol of certainty, some of the issues we need to have addressed in our own spiritual formation. Uh, and I think we've uh, many times have worshiped the wrong things and we've had false paradigms. You know, I say in the book that it's not just sheep that get lost, shepherds get lost too. And I think this is a time of recalibration. So I'm not minimizing the pain, you guys. Uh, pastors are hurting, but I'm very hopeful that this is a time of pruning individually, organizationally, and culturally where Christ will be glorified, we'll be more like Christ, and our churches will be more fruitful, not necessarily bigger, mm. but more fruitful. Mm. I think that's a really important distinction. Um, in your book, you, you, I love the way you play with the GPS metaphor, and you talk about the God positioning system. Yeah. And so even thinking about pastors that would probably, and shepherds that would say, man, I feel lost right now. Um, yeah, could you speak to a little bit about how you see this idea of the God positioning system bringing pastors back to the heart of the Father? Yeah, I really do think this is a big part of it because in my own life, and I share different stories, there are times I've got off course. I actually stood in front of my congregation, this is 20 some years ago now, and uh, asked their forgiveness. You know, when a pastor does that, you can hear a pin drop, right? Because it's usually it's moral impropriety, and I'm not minimizing that sin or financial malfeasance. But I realized that I was not equipping people for the majority of their life. I call it pastoral malpractice. So my point is that my own pastoral paradigm, my theology that drove what it meant for me to be a faithful pastor equipping my people, I was off center, right? So you think of GPS, if you are not, if you do not have a clear north, it doesn't take you long to get way off, right? So what I talk about in the book is the need to have a true north bearing. And I think the biggest issue for me, guys, is that pastors who lead well are well led. And I think it's not just being a shepherd, it's being shepherded well. I think the greatest opportunity and need of pastors in our time is to learn how to follow well, first and foremost, the good shepherd. In fact, in the book, I unpack Psalm 23 as maybe a primary leadership recalibration 
with intimacy with Christ, apprenticeship with him. These are foundational things that help us lead. We only lead out of the overflow of our soul. Dallas Willard used to always say, rightly, rightly so, brilliant Dallas, who profoundly shaped my life and so many people, is that not just what we are doing, the most important thing for pastors is who we are becoming. And unless our calibration is due north of apprenticeship with Jesus and intimacy with him and following him, the rest of it's going to get off course. And it is. Look around us. Yeah. There's traps yeah. used about everywhere for pastors. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you referenced the Dallas quote in the seminary courses that I teach. That is the first slide that goes up on the first course every single time is the thing that people remember is who you're becoming. And that is so crucial. So I'm curious, you know, you talk about confessing to your congregation, which is so beautiful. And everything I've known about you, Tom, in, in terms of humility, it makes total sense. That doesn't surprise me. But I'm also curious what now that you're 30 plus years in at, at Christ Community yeah. Church there in Kansas City, what would you tell young Tom in his first year of ministry? What, what, what do you know now you wish you knew when you were just starting out in ministry? Uh, that is such a great question. You know, we live our life forward. This is Soren Kierkegaard. We understand it backward. And you're asking me that Kierkegaardian moment. Thank you. It's a brilliant question. Two things stand out immediately. Um, number one is, uh, and again, I am not casting aspersion on anyone who taught me because I had wonderful professors, I had a wonderful family, but I've had to do some theological recal recalibration. And because of theological impoverishment, I had a couple major impoverishments. Number one is on spiritual formation. What I missed was, is that Jesus profoundly invites us into transformation. And it's not just his precepts, it's his practices. So the apprenticeship model of intimacy first, um, and training with Jesus, uh, and taking his yoke and learning from him. I did not know that starting out. So one of my major shifts was a shift on spiritual formation. The second thing would be the Sunday to Monday gap I alluded to. If I were just starting out for a young pastor, I would say, fundamentally, you are called, I'm called to equip God's people for the majority of their life. I need to be much more concerned about how well God's people as priests God's people who are on mission on Monday, how well they're doing, not how well I'm doing on Sunday. And I, I was much more focused how well I thought I was doing on Sunday rather than deeply committed to how well God's people were doing on Monday in formation and in mission. Mm. So those two are really quick, easy answers for me. I really blew it in those two areas. But I'm grateful God uses our failures, right? Amen. Often for his glory. Yeah. Amen. 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 Indeed. Amen. So what, is a, what does a Monday look like for you? That's always one of our, our go-to questions. You know, Monday morning pastor, that's a hard day. Some people find that to be the day that they work and they need to just kind of plow through email. Other people say, no, that's right. my day off. What does that look like for you? What, what are your Monday rhythms? Well, my Monday rhythm changes because of my season of life and the complexity of the church I serve. So imagine I've had the great joy, guys, uh, 33 years ago, arriving in Kansas City after seminary moving in a little apartment in Lenexa, Kansas with my six-month-old son and my bride. Now, 40 years is made. Yeah. Uh, and we, on a good Sunday morning, we were two on a good membership <laughs> morning. I mean, this is where we started. And, and again, I'm not saying that like I'm anything special. I'm not. But the Lord's given me that wonderful privilege of having a front row seat for 33 years. So in the early 10 years, because of the size of our church family in terms of numbers, 
uh, <clears throat> and complexity, I could take Monday off. I think Monday is a great day to take off because Sunday you exert yourself and we know about adrenaline and so forth. As our church grew and more and more leadership was needed for me to serve others and make them generative and support them, because it's increasingly about others in my life, I had to shift days off. So my Sabbath day is, is Friday. Uh, so I have to shift it because of the need of the organization. And then the, my season of life now is an empty nester. It's easier for me to do that. However, my Monday is a very important morning. So I guard my mornings. <laughs> Most of my mornings are time alone with the Lord, with my dog, my coffee, Wall Street Journal. Uh, and then I lead a teaching team across our campuses. I lead coordination meetings the whole day. So it's a pretty full day of meetings because that sets the trajectory for the whole. Uh, we have five campuses and uh, our team. So I, I have a backup role now. I'm a coach. I'm an encourager. I help lead this teaching team across campuses. But it's more supportive in meetings. Time alone with God, with my dog, good exercise, and leading meetings. And we have a residency too. So we're just like a teaching hospital. So we have four to six residents uh, that we meet with. They finish their MDiv and come and spend two years of immersion like a teaching hospital. So usually there's a resident meeting late in the afternoon where we, we discuss a book or something that's going on. Mm. That's my typical Monday if I'm in town. I, I mean, I really appreciate how you even mentioned season of life and, and how the Mondays can shift in that. Because I think sometimes yep. we can get really caught in, well, this is how, what is what I need to do? And, and actually paying attention to the internal rhythms and the external rhythms of life right. can, really, um, can really change the way that we begin to view those pieces. But I really appreciate that. One of the things, too, this is sort of changing the topic a bit, but, but not too much, because my, my sense is being involved in ministry for over 30 years, there's, a, there's this little thing called resilience that has grown in you. And so, I, you know, Jr. and I talk about, we, we use this quote a lot uh, in our circles, but the, the fantastic Peterson quote, the title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, but yeah. you changed a word. Uh, which I should be angry at because, you know, how dare you change Eugene Peterson's word, but I love it. A long resilience, a long resilience in the same direction. Um, how does a pastor develop that kind of resilience to stay in the game for 30, you know, for, for, for the long term, whether it be 30 years, 20 years, 25 years, whatever that would be? Well, I'm not sure I have the answers yet, and I adore Eugene Peterson, so I hope I haven't uh, hindered his legacy. I just touched, I mean, obedience has to be at the core of that yes. resilience. How do you yes. stay resilient? It's still be obedient. You know, that's a really good question, and uh, again, we are probing uh, kind of the twilight zone of mystery here. There's a combination of things, right? We, we uh, have personal agency, we have God's sovereignty, we have the Spirit's work, we have the mystery of grace. So not to get too abstract, but I think a few things that are my part in that mystery, okay? I mean, I, I haven't finished well, and my prayer is that I will. Um, but I would say a few things are really important to me. One is that I have sought to, to cultivate growing intimacy with Jesus. I've sought to be teachable from others and not disconnected from others, to learn with others and be in community, right? I mean, I think we don't ever do this alone. Obviously, with God first, right? But with others, uh, we were never created to be alone. We we can't do this alone. We can't lead alone. We can't serve alone. We can't be formed alone. So I've been deeply immersed in uh, close friends and close community and other wonderful people that God has brought in my life. I there's such a mystery of some of the finest leaders. I could give you some of the names of how God has allowed me. The Dallas Willers uh, to spend time with people like that. The James Hunters on culture. So. 
I feel very mysteriously blessed to have other people have helped shape me. But three or four things. One is, I would say I really cultivated, cultivated physical discipline, uh, not as an end, but as a means. And so I think one of the way we're resilient, we're learning this much more from neurobiology and physiology. I've been committed to exercise regularly all my life and to stay physically the best I can stay. And I think that's given me that. I serve with an amazing team. I serve with great leaders. I don't ever feel like I bear the, uh, the weight alone. And I have an amazing bride named Liz. Uh, so there's certain things that I think have allowed me to be more resilient in that mystery of grace. Mm-hmm. So your book, The Flourishing Pastor, and of course, made, of course, made to flourish, flourish is a really important word. So I want to ask you, what are some of the key factors of flourishing that you see in pastors, part A? And then part B, what are some of the things that when you see some indicators in the lives of pastors, you go, uh-oh, that's danger zone. Um, so it kind of part A and part B, but what, what are those elements of flourishing that you think are so important? And, and also, why is that word so important to you in your calling? <laughs> well, first of all, it's important to me because I'm a real Genesis guy. Uh, I mean, I'm a Torah guy. So the organic kind of metaphor of creation, I just, I didn't have enough grasp of the importance of Genesis, especially one through three. And I spent spent so many years in a scholastic way studying that brilliant text, which again, invites humans into this organic metaphor of the garden, so forth. So yes, I mean, I, I'm very drawn to flourishing because I see this so deeply connected to the integral nature of creation. <clears throat> so I would say, yeah, I mean, that metaphor, and of course, Jesus, brilliant Jesus, unpacks fruitfulness and so forth. So Flourishing is a dynamic. Flourishing is also a relational dynamic. So it's not just organic, it's deeply relational. And what we understand about our triune God and our God is very relational. We are made in his image, and that uh, means that we are connecting and reflecting. This is uh, Salem, this great idea of image bearing. Uh, so all I have to say is that I, I think flourishing captures the multi-dimension of an integral life, an integral life that is relationally connected, vulnerable, safe, and open. You know, I've been profoundly shaped by Dan Siegel and Kurt Thompson, Kurt's a friend, uh, and they speak so deeply about the S's, right, that all of us need, first of all, to be seen, right? We need to be seen, safe, secure, and soothed. And I think that's been a really important part for me. So back to your first part of your question, flourishing is multidimensional. It is deeply relational. So. I would say when I see a flourishing pastor, I see the fruit of that. Uh, I see a sense of humility because when Jesus says, those who are yoked to him will be like him. And Jesus says, I am gentle and humble of heart. I look for a honest gentleness and humility that is reflecting of someone spending a lot of time in apprenticeship with Jesus. I look for the audience of one in motivation. You know, are they living, loving, and serving before an audience of one? And are they recognizing the seductive nature of power, sex, and money? I mean, you know, the world, flesh, and the devil, do they have an understanding of their vulnerability to the things that are going to destroy their life? So intimacy with Jesus, community with others, but I think an audience of one is what I would look for. Are you living and serving before audience one? How do you handle applause? How do you handle success? How do you handle failure? and there's much more we could say there. Obviously, it's a really big question, but those are some things that would come to mind. I would want them to cultivate an audience of one more than anything else, to live each day before an audience of one and practice that, 
press into that and lead from that. I think they're in pretty good shape if they do that. Yeah, Tom, I think you're you're absolutely right, and and I really appreciate that the one thing you said that pastors need to they, you know quoting Kurt Thompson Kurt, that they need to be seen. Um, what would you say to the pastor right now who feels like no one sees him or her? I think there are a lot of those out there. Some of it's self-imposed. Some of it's uh, tied to structure and organization and some toxic church systems. Mm. So I would say, first of all, you need to know that, that you are loved and known by God first. You need to be seen by God, right? I mean, this, this is the most important longing we have is to be truly seen and known by God himself, which the scripture teaches, right? Not just to know God, but to be known by him. So I'm not minimizing that. But then also I would seek out friends. It's risky to have a couple close friends. Hopefully it's if you're married, a spouse or a roommate uh, and become vulnerable and honest and transparent. Take the risk um, because all of us need a handful of people around us that we are really transparent with that love us and know us and care for us and will speak hard truth into our lives and will encourage us when we're right at our rock bottom. So we need a handful, at least a very close confidence where we can be totally transparent. And if we don't have it, we're in trouble. We will never flourish without that. Yeah, Tom, that's great. And you talked about the the peril, the three perilous paths. You talked about, um, yeah. you know, the celebrity pas- uh, pastor, the yeah. visionary pastor, and um, and the Lone Ranger pastor. Those are really tempting, and they're really, uh, I wouldn't say ubiquitous, but they're very popular. They're very commonplace, and they're also praised in our not just our culture, our church culture. Absolutely. So how do we push back against these, against these three? If this is non-flourishing pastor, pastoral work, why is it celebrated and how do we run counter to that? Yeah, I highlight these three. There's probably more. And would you like to press into one over the other? I mean, that's a, all three of them have different dynamics. Sure. Well, which, which one of those do you see as most perilous? and maybe most popular and and maybe needs to be pushed against they all need to be pushed against but which one do you do you see that is lacking or uh, it needs the most attention i should say yeah i i i have a hard time knowing that uh dear i'm going to go with one that is more subtle can i and i may be a bit contrarian sure. listeners want a little contrarian the most contrarian one of those three is the visionary pastor so let me unpack just a little bit of that, okay? I'm in line with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, so I think I'm in good hands because Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood a lot of perils of clergy in Germany. But he said in his brilliant uh, Life Together book, God hates visionary dreaming. And what he means by that is a vision apart from the kingdom of God. It's very easy for pastors to project the future. It's like going up to Sinai and getting the tablets. Like in 10 years, we're going to be 20,000 people and we're going to change the world. and I mean, most of that visionarying, or often it can become culturally encoded and toxic. And what it does to the individual, let alone the faith community, is what Bonhoeffer unpacks, the, the, the death knoll of that to the individual. So I'm all for pastoral leadership on a, in, a, in a team, in a local church, setting direction, seeking the Lord. But I'm very concerned about when there's one visionary and there's some grand, bigger culture vision, usually more money, more buildings. Now, God's not against that necessarily, but it's culturally encoded and it can be very toxic to the listener. We have all kinds of examples of toxicity 
of the grand visionary. And the grand visionary often is a celebrity too, right? It, it builds together to become a toxic duo. But I've experienced that myself of being under visionary leadership and the implosion of the organization when the leader had some grand vision and took the organization down. So I'm just saying visionary leadership, as it's understood by many, is so culturally often toxic. It's not casting a vision of the kingdom of God, the, the life God has for us. If that's what you're casting in scripture, I'm all in, right? Like, this is the kingdom of God we should cast. This is the vision of the life God has for us. Amen. Let's cast that. But uh, if it's um, often a cultural bigger, better, more, it's often to stroke the ego of the visionary. And what's not said, and I know a lot of people who carried the yoke of vision after 10 years, is what it does to the visionary. Imagine if, if you, to, to sustain your leadership, have to go up, get a, go on a retreat and find the next big thing that you're going to come back to your congregation and sell. This gets exhausting. And what is not told is how exhausting visionary leadership is in this context for the visionary leader. So there are multiple layers, even though that sounds a little, little contrary to you. So what do you mean? I have to have vision to lead. In one sense, that's right. But there's some real perils here. And I may be a bit contrarian, but I know some of these visionary pastors. I've had conversations. I know the burden of having to cast the next big vision and the exhaustion it brings. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy to think that um, just in these very <laughs> fleeting moments, we've been able to go so deep. And Tom, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, just two questions, I think, to, to end our time. The first question is, um, and again, you've you've been so encouraging already, but but what is one encouragement you would have for pastors on this Monday morning or whatever their Monday morning is? And then the second question is, could you could you leave us with the benediction? Sure. What I would want to say to any pastor or any leader and whoever's listening on a Monday morning, the number one thing I would want for you is to realize how much the God of the universe delights in you. I mean delights in you. <laughs> regardless of your success or failure, because of what Christ has done, may you experience the sense of his delight in you, period, as a child, a son or daughter of God. Mm -hmm. uh, I would want that for you this morning more than anything, no matter what your day mm -hmm. is, that, that you are his delight. Um, that is so important. And then the benediction, I'll just give you some end of Psalm 90, because you know I've written a lot in the area of work and economics and uh, I really believe your Monday world matters. Wherever God has called you, your work matters. Work is contribution, not compensation, first and foremost. So whether you're paid a lot for it or not, or you're volunteering or whatever you are called to do today, or whoever you are called to do it for, your neighbor, may Psalm 90 go with you. And Psalm 90 ends, right? May the favor of the Lord rest upon us. Lord, confirm the work of our hands. Yes, Lord, confirm the work of our hands. Amen. 